listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello to my beautiful listeners and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books Podcast and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today I'm so excited to welcome Daphne Brooks to talk about her new book, Live Notes for the Revolution, The Intellectual Life of Black Feminist Sound. She'll be in conversation with Linnell George, but before I introduce them, I want to remind you that Skylight Books is now fully open. So come on by if you're Make sure to like look at our um, guidelines before you come on by, but you're welcome to come on in. We're still offering online order on our website, www.skylightbooks.com. So feel free to look at our website as well. Daphne A. Brooks is a William R. Keenan Jr. Professor of African American Studies, American Studies, Women's Gender and, Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies, and Music at Yale University and the author of Jeff Buckley's Grace and of Bodies and Descent, winner of the Errol Hill Award for Outstanding Scholarship in African-American Performance Studies. She has written liner notes to accompany the recordings of Aretha Franklin, Tammy Terrell, and Prince, as well as stories for the New York Times, The Guardian, The Nation, and Pitchfork. Today, Daphne will be uh, in conversation with Linnell George, who is an LA-based journalist and essayist. She has a long career in LA journalism as a staff writer for both the Los Angeles Times and LA Weekly, focusing on social issues, human behavior, visual arts, music, and literature. Her arts and culture writing has been featured on KCET, Artbound, and KPCC's The Frame. She is the author of No Crystal Stare, African Americans in the City of Angels, a collection of features and essays drawn from her reporting. After Image, Los Angeles Outside the Frame, she has won a 2017 Grammy for her liner notes, Otis Redding Live at the, at the Whiskey A Go-Go, and is a 2020 rep- re- recipient of a Distinguished Journalist Award from the, from the Society of Professional Journalists Los, slash Los Angeles. Her latest book, A Handful of Earth, A Handful of Sky, The World of Octavia E. Butler, is a finalist for a Hugo Award. Welcome, Daphne and Linnell. I'm so excited to have you. And sorry if I... <laughs> During that introduction, mispronounced some stuff. Um, no, it was, but like, I'm so excited to have you both. This is going to be a wonderful episode. Thank you so much, Lance, for having us. No problem. It's my pleasure. So, Daphne, you have a reading for us today? Yes, I do. So, I'm going to so start sorry. off with um, the opening pages of the book, the introduction. And if there's time, I'm going to share the opening pages of each of the two parts of the book. Um, The book is uh, divided into side A and side B in homage to 
the vinyl experience that I grew up with and that guides at least part of the vision of the book. So let me get started. Quiet as it's kept, Black women of sound have a secret. Theirs is a history unfolding on other frequencies while the world adores them and yet mishears them, celebrates them and yet ignores them, heralds them and simultaneously devalues them. Theirs is a history that is nonetheless populated with revolutionaries, turn of the century vaudevillian Muriel Ringgold rocking her entirety in full costume as the sea. Blues trailblazer Mamie Smith breaking the era of modern records wide open all crazy and staggerly style love. Opera ingenue Anne Brown rewriting best to Gershwin's Porgy. High Priestess Nina orchestrating a Brechtenfile tempest aimed at overturning Jim Crow and slinky Afro-cosmopolitan Eartha staging her own geopolitical cabaret. It's a history wide enough to encompass rebel with her own cause, rock and roller Etta James in a fast car out on the open road and folk historian Odetta going deep into scholar, thinker, rule breaker Zora's precious vault so that the real work songs can begin. It's teen Aretha in shimmering sequins attacking Al Jolson's Swanee and those glam ambassadors, the Supremes pointing us towards somewhere one day after a king had been slain. It's the body and soul of a grown ass musician building bridges over troubled water for her listeners. The electric kinetics of anime Bullock breaking free from domestic tyranny Fuck funk philosopher Betty, Betty Davis inventing her own erotic lexicon, an intergalactic trio LaBelle delivering Afrofuturist theory all up in the club. Theirs is a history of the utopic and the transformative, the strange and the strategically unruly. Diana reaching out and touching the hands of the multitudes in the Central Park rain. Afropunk godmother Grace driving Atlantic world nightlife right to the edge while polystyrene and skin work on burning the whole house down. It's Whitney's melisma lighting up post-civil rights America and it's Ms. Hill with her renegade contralto scoring a thousand turn of the century sorrow songs for the hip hop generation. It's a hardworking H-Town, new millennium storm system performing radical black pop feminism to fight catastrophe. And it's her avant-garde genius baby sis staging a blackest of black uprising right in the center of the lily white Guggenheim. Theirs is a history of game-changing art that stands as an affirmation of our past as well as the unrecorded future of sound, that which is booming in the not yet, the place where all those sisters of the yam are running us straight into the dawn. Liner Notes for the Revolution tells the story of how Black women musicians have made the modern world. It is the first extensive archival interrogation of what ethnomusicologist Christopher Small has famously referred to as the quote unquote musicking extending in all directions in our world, end quote, made by women who have been overlooked 
or underappreciated, misread and sometimes lazily mythologized, underestimated and sometimes entirely disregarded and above all else, perpetually under theorized by generations of critics for much of the last 100 years. These critics and tastemakers, collectors, and far too many scholars have engaged in a long game, one that involves oversimplifying, simplistically romanticizing, and at key moments, rapturously cry me a river, sentimentalizing the complexities of Black women musicians' work. It is the problem of their hold on the narratives about Black women's sonic artistry, that constitutes a significant portion of this book. But make no mistake, they are not the stars of this show. Rather, it is the remarkable sisters who both have made and have been thinking and writing about Black women's music for over a century now. They are the ones who stand front and center in this study. And they are the ones who have so fundamentally reshaped structures of feeling and expressive cultural forms in the popular domain since the dawn of the 20th century, that one would be hard pressed to imagine an American culture without their influence. But do we even know some of these sisters' names? These women, this book argues, are culture makers who often labor right before our very eyes and ears without our recognition of the magnitude of their import. And the revolution that they waged was one in which the articulation of more life to cite Tony Kushner, more life could for a dispossessed people be sounded out in many registers and tied to the core meaning and vision of liberation itself. Implicit in so much of their work is the stirring and glorious declaration once made by Zora that you don't know us Negroes, quote unquote. From side A of the book, I'll read briefly. For much of the last century, pop music writers and the latter-day institutions that support and promote their claims have been anything but kind to Black women musicians. Plenty of people would argue otherwise, citing, for instance, the long-running tendency of pop music writers to think in hagiographic hey, terms about the, the mothers and empresses, the queens, so many queens and high priestesses who have dazzled and destroyed audiences for one generation to the next, and who have belted out the soundtrack to our interior lives as we face the uncertainty, the volatility, the exhilaration, as well as the sorrows of modern times. And they'd be right to call our attention to the ways that these sisters, so beloved the world over, are worthy of monarchical metaphors. They built kingdoms of sound for the people who remained largely unseen or misread, vilified and unloved for much of the 400-year crawl that constitutes this singular and more than a little bit terrifying experiment that would come to be known as America. Yet these sonically electrifying worlds are ones that were and still remain largely controlled and engineered by a marketplace that they've never run. It's an operation that made their sounds available to the masses and gave wide technological access to others to mimic and enjoy. At the same time, it was not a phenomenon built to last, which is to say that in spite of the mass and massive exposure and circulation of popular music made by Black women, in spite of the varying instances of intense and sometimes rabid adoration, the kind that fosters fan hives and all sorts of obsessive idolatry, history reminds us that 
until quite recently with say the death of an unprecedented icon here and the release of a watershed album there, theirs has always been a culture marked as disposable, as less worthy of serious intellectual regard, writerly love as it were, and institutional recognition. Finally, I'm gonna wrap up by reading the first paragraph of side B to give you a sense of the arc of the book. We are engaged in a beautiful struggle to take back that which belongs to us, to get closer to the multitudes that we miss and the dear ones that we miss. Such a battle requires that we think, dream, plot, and prepare ourselves to write from an angular position, to generate critical tales that run askew from the standard script. Such an effort demands that we stretch the limits of our imagination and test the boundaries of the speculative. This is the kind of experimental endeavor that makes it possible to draft avant-garde liner notes in the language of Afrofuturist androids and to compose regional folk odes to the quixotic elsewhere like the kind made by polymath contrarians. Such questing and querying modes of the expressive are the forms we might summon to imperfectly approximate the artistic passions of say, a solitary postbellum music critic or the wished for conversations between disparate feminist radicals. We rehearse, we research, and we narrate both the possible and the impossible. We entertain valid conjectures, compelling theories of the what if, would be scenarios and alternate endings. And above all else, we turn to the music that warrants our scrupulous black feminist attention, our inspired notes, drafted from a variety of different perspectives and sounded out in as many keys as we might dare to play at once. Wow, thank you so much for this. Can you hear me okay? I can, yes. Okay. okay. Hi, um, Linnell George. Hi, Ebony Brooks. <laughs> <laughs> We're almost together in the room. <laughs> I know, I know. And I have to say, um, the experience of spending time with your narrative um, has been like a conversation already, you know, for me, and, um, and an essential one, and one I didn't even really know how much I needed, um, because there were so, there were so many moments um, in it where the resonance was just like, I mean, it was just body reverberation, you know, like, oh my gosh, yes, this, or, oh, that's why, or anyway. Um, so I could talk to you for hours and probably <laughs> will eventually, but um, I want that, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to, I'm going to jump in and I try to like pare things down. <laughs> so for our podcast, but we will have an extended conversation. I know. Um, but first, what a glorious book and thank you for the gift of it. Thank um, you. It's a corrective, it's an embrace. Um, it speaks directly to all of these essential lists and starred systems that of criticism that we have navigated through, lived through for mm -hmm. decades. I can't, you know, um, and it, it turns it all on its head and makes us think in a, 
it forces our brain to work in a different way about mm-hmm. what is what is before us and how we judge it and how it marks us. Um, you mentioned in passing, just when we were having a, a casual conversation before this, that this book was years long in the making. What were the seeds and how did it haunt you over the years? Mm, yeah, well, thank you. And first of all, thank you, Linnell George. <laughs> We don't want to embarrass people on podcasts, but you've been such a hero to me for so many years and a model of how to write and how to think and how to be brave as a writer and thinker. So it's the honor is all mine um, to be here. Um, you know, I've answered that question a few different ways. There's like the deep dive way and then there's the, the uber professional way. <laughs> the deep dive way is to say that, you know, I'm a born and bred Northern Californian from the San Francisco Bay Area. And this is usually where people give pause, like, and then I can elaborate. I'm a, what's called in my family, a menopause baby, mm-hmm. <laughs> meaning that they weren't expecting me. I came late and, you know, I, I entered into a much older family of you know, two siblings who were spaced far apart in and of themselves, but my brother was 17 years older than me, is 17 years older than me. My sister is 10 years older than me. And my, my parents thought they were done. You know, they were civil rights educators who'd migrated from um, Texas and Arkansas in 1950 to Berkeley. And uh, by the time I came along, um, they'd moved down to, to Menlo Park, um, which is right next door to Palo Alto for non-Northern Californians. And there was so much music in my house and I absorbed it all. And that's stories that we, those are the kinds of stories we all have of, you know, the father who's listening to Count Basie and Duke Ellington and the mother who was listening to that too, but who I've been thinking a lot more about her. She's 95 now and about how, and she's in the book, but um, how she really embraced the spinners and Al Green as her grown ass women's delightful, you know, music. Um, and my brother had the Temptations, my sister had the Jackson Five, and there was a kind of way that moving the radio, the radio station down the dial to these AOR stations mm-hmm. just picked my interest and, you know, had me falling in love with both the, the new wave that was getting picked up on some of the newer radio stations in, in San Francisco, KQAK came later when I was in high school, but you know, the police were like a kind of crossover band for me. And um, nobody wanted to talk to me about that music in the house. You know, so I'm like jamming to the clash and the police. And I'm also very intrigued by the psychedelia and the hangover post-psychedelia period in the San Francisco area that's saturated with Bill Graham presents, you know, shows. And so coming up around, you know, Boss Gags and Steve Miller, you know, these were right. all like names that were Eddie Money, right? Right, right? But they were not. So I was finding that on the radio. I wasn't finding that in the home. And because I was always a very literary, you know, obsessed person, which is important to the narrative too. Um, I just kind of, I wanted to read about the music and have conversations about the music with someone. Mm -hmm. And that took me to Tower Records, which was just, you know, right. It was just everything, right? Right. Tower Records. Oh, I lived at Tower. Tower, right. California, you know, um, Origins, Sacramento. um, And, and one of their biggest stores that opened when I was a kid was in Los Altos slash Mountain View, California, which is right next door to Palo Alto. And I would save up my money and go, you know, take the bus down to tower and, you know, I'd be living in the bins, but also because it was such a huge um, 
outlet of their store, um, there was a big book section. And so then I was, then I was right up in the racks, like reading Rolling Stone, reading Cream, reading Hit Parade, looking at some of the books that were considered, you know, actually literary in relation to the music, like Grail Marcus's Mystery Train. Right. right. And um, I, I just lived for a long time with the ideas about how the music was written about. And I, I dreamed of being a rock critic. I told my professors at Berkeley at first <laughs> that I didn't want to go to graduate school because I wanted to be the first black feminist critic to have a column at Rolling Stone magazine. Like, mm. girl, don't you want healthcare? Right? <laughs> so whatever, that's a whole other thing. But um, so I, the book, the book kind of, it, it grew out of these questions that I'd been living with for mm. my entire readerly life about what it meant to find yourself in both, what it meant to, to, to identify with certain kinds of sounds and then not be able to, find yourself represented in the culture linked mm-hmm, to the South. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, so that's mm-hmm. that's the long arc of it mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. uh, it it sounds very familiar <laughs> yes <laughs> I mean, as a listener yeah, you know and yeah and when you talk about listening across the dial and and that is the beauty I think of radio it's mm-hmm. it's an atlas in a way too because mm-hmm. you can move through you know yeah just kind of living on the band and yes. It takes you into all of these different worlds. And then if you decide, I want to jump in and go live, mm-hmm. it takes you physically into places you would not necessarily right. be in. Yes. And it makes your world bigger. Yes. You know? Yes. It absolutely, it makes your world bigger. It makes you kind of imagine and experiment and rehearse all of these different ways of being, which, you know, music is always hailing you to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as, as a post-civil rights child, mm-hmm. you know, um, we have great studies like Maureen Mann's first book, The Right to Rock, about the Black Rock Coalition, yes. right, and about right. what it meant for our generation of African-Americans to um, you know, first be buzzed, bust, buzzed. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish we'd been buzzed. Maybe, maybe <laughs> a little easier. bit easier, right? <laughs> exactly. But bust into these integrated settings. And so picking up on a lot of music that we didn't hear in the home and trying to, you know, claim it as our own. And, and actually we know, of course, from the Black Rock Coalition and from just good study that the music really was ours, you know? And right. so being able to reclaim that, you know, right. right? That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, the writing piece of it that I felt very, um, was very fraught for me was recognizing the ways in which the gonzo journalism that I also being so deeply Bay area. I mean, this is, you know, Mm -hmm. this was a a revolution that, you know, emerged not just out of the Bay area, but I always like to say as a Berkeley alum, you know, was so central to UC Berkeley because of, the complicated figure who is Jan Winner, who, yes, you know, yes, exactly. Rolling Stone, came yeah. into Berkeley, Ralph Gleason, who was, you know, in the Bay Area, but there are tons of, Grail Marcus went through Berkeley, um, and Powers and Eric Weisbart, et cetera, et cetera. But the point being that, um, you know, I think I was around um, a real kind of intellectual life world that it was attached to the mm-hmm. music. And it was very personalized, you know, mm-hmm. very eccentric and sweet, generous. And I wanted to be able to write like that and have my own imprint mm-hmm. like that on the music mm-hmm. and on, or on the narratives of the music. And because it was so it was far and few between the, the examples of where I could see myself represented in that way, right. you know, right. that's why someone like you was so important to me when I was in graduate school, seeing you out there, Danielle Smith, mm-hmm. um, Joan Morgan, 
real pathbreaking sisters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, another way to think about how this book came to be was to ask questions about who were, there were women, there were always, we were always there. So who were the sisters who were before, right. you know, who came and they left their seeds and their resonances to use your word. That mm-hmm. was such a moving word um, all around us. And it's just about kind of picking up their frequencies again. It's really true. Um, I, and I definitely, yeah, when I got to the sections about these women who, and I'll, I'll, I don't want to race ahead because I really want to talk about that because that really struck me too. Because as you, as like, I, I remember in ninth grade sitting in the back of my English class and I was bored and, you know, in my English class, because, <laughs> you know, the teacher was babysitting, you know, some students and, and I just was like, but he, bless, bless him. He had copies of Rolling Stone wow. in the back of his classroom wow. and there was a sofa and it was covered with this tie-dye, you know, yes. um, <laughs> I love you it. know, cover. And I would sit in the back and read these Rolling Stone and, yes. and I was, the music, yes, drew, drew me first and reading the music writing, but then it was reading the news writing and the feature writing. Yes. And as you said, that voice as a yes. model, you know, yes. of like, oh, this is the way I can enter the music. This is the way I can yeah. enter the world, you know, yeah. and, and look, I can write this way where yes. I'm using elements of fiction, you know, yes. in, in terms of the descriptions and, right. and place setting and right. having people speak and interact and, yeah. and write it with authority. And yes. as you said, to okay. find, but not to be able to find us. Mm-hmm. So my question, mm-hmm. one of the things that was really um, important um, to me, let me see, maybe I'll jump down to this one too, because you, mm-hmm. you highlight some early figures of import, mm-hmm. Pauline Hopkins, mm-hmm. Lorraine O'Grady, who I'm yes. like, <laughs> oh my God, Bill Garland. Yes. Oh only my to God. name a few. Yes. Um, Cynthia Dagnall Myron. That's right. Also, yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, in the, yeah. But black women were not marginal, you know, right. they were marginalized, yes. you know, and that yes, is the right. part that you really make mm-hmm. clear. Yes. And I really, I started, I started bobbing my head with you, like it was this big yes to your music, <laughs> you know, your writing yeah. and the writing mm-hmm. is just gorgeous. Everyone, mm-hmm. please. The book is just, I just kind of waltzed along with her. Cause again, you know, you got, <laughs> it's, 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 it's like, you're pulling in, um, you know, like, you know, the history and then we're also like I'm sitting knee to knee with you and we're just talking we're just talking we're just talking um and that's what made it but Mm. back to my question um um, but when I was reading the session particularly about profile writing Mm -hmm. and how editors when you're writing about a a woman artist versus a man artist and what people wanted, what editors yes. expected. And yes. I, thought, I hadn't even thought about it that way, but yeah. it's true. Like, yes, for men, it was their ideas and, yes. and what, and their mm-hmm. trappings and, and their successes mm-hmm. and their lists. And, yep. and for women, it was the clothes and the domestic life yes. expectations yes. and all of that. Yes. And I was especially moved by that story mm-hmm. about Esther Phillips. Yes. And um, the near, again, the narrowness of expectations. Right. Can you speak a little bit about this and the mm-hmm. wily ways these forebears worked mm-hmm. around these industry standards? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so beautiful. It's a beautiful question. Yeah, the example that you give um, is taken from an Ebony feature written by the great Phil Garland. Everyone should look up Phil Garland. I think we're beginning to have a little Phil Garland renaissance, right? Sadly, in her in the wake of her passing in the, in the early aughts, but she... Um, she wrote a book called The Sound of Soul and um, 
was just this mammoth music critic who wrote for Ebony as well as a number of other outlets. And then by the 80s started teaching at Columbia J School. Mm-hmm. That feature on Esther Phillips is really about kind of, you know, trying to subvert our expectations of really um, spending a disproportionate amount of time on um, Esther Phillips' personal narratives, her struggles with substance abuse, and really yeah. just a very, very difficult, you know, arc her career that ended tragically. And I, I really wanted to pay attention throughout the book, but in this case, in Bill's case, this is a great example, I hope, of this, of, of the craft of building a narrative around the music that's critical and expansive and about ideas, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for Phil Garland, who was um, deeply, deeply and openly influenced by Amiri Baraka and by his pathbreaking history-making book, Blues People, um, she had a very strong um, focus on it, the ways in which music was tied to black, nas- black nationalist possibility. And I'm, I'm going to let that just hang in the air because there are a lot of different ways we can define black nationalism, but she really did believe in a kind of the world making possibilities, um, black world making possibilities of black sound. And in the Esther Phillips um, profile, it opens with her at um, the outdoor Lincoln Center concert, which has its ties to a much larger story about black nationalist cultures, the, the late great Ellis Hazlip, queer oh, yes, brother, yes. who's the yes. star Mr. of the, Mr. Saul, right? This brilliant feature by his cousin, uh, documentary by his cousin, Melissa, Melissa Hazlip, which came out last year. Everyone should should see it, but um, so he had a he, fantastic, right? So he had this weekly PBS show, like nothing else that was about black arts and culture and politics, but he also hosted, and my great colleague, um, the scholar Gail Wald has written about this in her book, It's Been Beautiful, that charts the whole history of Ellis Hazlip and and his sole program. Um, He did an outdoor um, concert series that brought black folks into these spaces in which people couldn't imagine them, imagine them like Lincoln Center, even though for New York City history wonks, we know that that was a site that was uh, originally, you know, African-American residences, or it had been in the mid-century before it was completely raised to build Lincoln Center. (laughs) So, um, So for her to kind of, to start by centering her reader in this black space, this this reoccupied you know, black space, and to think about what Esther Phillips' music and her aesthetic labor is doing in that space was not only about um, you know, honoring Esther Phillips, it was also for me um, calling readers to pay attention to what black writers can do and black women writers can do mm-hmm. if we can um, open ourselves up to listening to the world through their ears. Um, and so that was, that's something that I feel like is a part of the pedagogy of the book that, mm-hmm. you know, speaks to how to, you know, buck the kinds of conventions of right. what we're expected to be writing about, about, right. um, you know, popular musicians. Because mm-hmm. so often it's like, you know, the assignment, and I know for me is like, especially in my early years is there really was this idea about like what was deemed cool or as you mentioned too authentic yeah you know, the artists that could be written about yeah and um and and people outside of our culture and mm-hmm. race 
we're making these decisions and yes. we were having to go to battle yes to write about the people that you yes. have thank goodness shown a light on in this book mm-hmm. you know um because yeah. so many of these people like the culture bearers the people who like mm-hmm. were playing i think about like the certain like jazz piano players who are playing gigs here mm-hmm. in LA who were not, you know, going to be written about in the national right. press, but they were there every week for 20 years yes. sitting at their piano. When yes. I was, I was sitting as I was reading along and I, and it, I hadn't even gotten to her name yet. And then you mentioned Dorothy Donegan. And of course I had already started thinking about her wow seeing her at the old Catalina yes. Bar and Grill Jazz yes, Club. Yes, Catalina Bar and Grill. With her purse that she brought, <laughs> took it off her arm, plumped it on like the Aretha. Of the piano. Yeah, like Aretha. Like, I'm not leaving my <laughs> yeah. purse in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. For the <laughs> That's what you, I mean, you yeah. elevated these people because that was mm-hmm. it. It's like, I felt like, finally, mm-hmm. finally, someone mm-hmm. is is doing mm-hmm. this. And that's that's what I wanted to ask you too mm-hmm. is, is I'm particularly fascinated about how you open this definition of what it was to be a critic but yeah. even more important what it is to be a witness and yes the, our culture bearers the folks who are working in the trenches the yep. Dorothy Donegans too you know yes. or, yeah. or the people writing about the Dorothy Donegans or trying right. to write about the Dorothy Donegans yeah are just as important as the bylines in the magazines mm-hmm. and newspapers or even are even more mm-hmm. so would mm-hmm. you say you know yes yeah um, so yeah. how, are you, how, how are you getting to some of these people who had mm-hmm. like been lost to the margins, yeah. been marginalized? Yeah, no, thank you for that. And I'm glad that you brought up Dorothy Donegan because, you know, I'm completely indebted to one of the figures who takes up one of the longer chapters mm-hmm. in the book, this, this woman named Rosetta Wrights, who yes. was white, Jewish, right? Second no waiver. Oh my God. I mean, just incredible. She I want passed. those records. Yeah. And they are available. So she, okay. she, um, largely through ebay but there there are okay. some that you can find on amazon the and train um, songs i want to hear yes oh those right and those those first few anthology records you know really do document you know the early blues the early classic women's blues in ways that nobody else was doing mm. um rosetta writes you know she's she's a boomer second waiver um Maybe actually a little bit older than Boomer. I get that. I get the markings um, wrong here sometimes. But she passed in 08, but she's, you know, in the late 70s writing about menopause. And she starts listening to Bessie Smith. And she's talked about this many times in the profiles that, um, you know, were were published about her in the, in the press once, um, you know, her success story did get out um, during her lifetime, thankfully. Um, but she she realized that um, a good number of the classic women's blues recordings were out of print, which was infuriating to her. And, you know, she had lived through the second blues revival, the transatlantic, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know, embrace of Robert Johnson, right, et cetera, right, et cetera, right. which becomes a pathway to the, the, the era of classic, um, the golden age of rock music criticism as well. Right, People like, right. you know, Grail, you know, and others were writing about um, Robert Johnson, she was infuriated by this yes. erasure and she pulled her money together and started her own indie label, label, uh, Rosetta records. And, you know, ultimately ended up putting out 19, um, full length albums that, um, you know, document the history of the classic women's blues mm-hmm. and, and, and went, 
you know, had a real commitment to both being able to expand the lexicon of what we understood about people like Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey, but also identify those people in the margins, right. like Dorothy Donegan, like you were talking about. She just, right. she had this prodigious, really formidable knowledge of blues women's history. Um, and so in addition to putting these recordings out, she, in her own kind of intellectual revolution, decided I'm going to write these really fierce, radical liner notes to each of these albums that, you know, finds a way to do the radical work of revaluing this music. And, and right, that's right. something that we, you know, could talk about all day, all day about what it means to actually the political project of revaluing black life mm -hmm. and the culture emergent out of black life, you know? So that's a, that, I'm just that's gonna a put a placeholder there, right? right? Yeah. But, um, you know, she was really mindful of that. She, and she felt like it was political and intellectual and aesthetic work. So you find in Rosetta Wright's um, liner notes and in her 67 boxes of memorabilia and notes, um, archival materials that she left behind for her wonderful daughter, Rebecca, to archive housed at Duke University now. Um, she was rehearsing and figuring out ways of coming up with a whole kind of critical lexicon to talk about blues women's music. And she was openly, you know, and overtly invested in trying to take the language of high art, for instance, you know, she would, she would, um, you know, rip out Time Magazine art reviews of Francis Bacon's exhibit at the Tate mm. and, you know, circle, you know, these lines that talked about, you know, the beauty of his work and then scramble them around. You know, it was kind of like this beautiful experimental language in order to come up with her own prose mm. about what blues women were mm -hmm. doing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I wanted to really document the labor of what she was doing to really think you know, about inventing a grammar that didn't exist to actually, you know, really yes. care for the magnitude and the depths and the seriousness and the innovation of what Black women musicians were doing. Right. Um, so she's a huge part of this narrative, um, you know, and I think of her as an intellectual accomplice to right. the, the Black women musicians mm -hmm. and critics in the book. Mm -hmm. as well, that this is a, mm -hmm. a kind of a collective project if we commit ourselves to trying to um, think counterintuitively about what we're, um, what we're told and socialized into expecting and believing about mm -hmm. the level of value of Black women's art and Black people's art more broadly. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and this is really, this was so important too, because part of what you do with this book in doing, in doing this is I love how you work with archives, for example, mm. and what having an archive, what people leave, what it tells us about it. And then people who don't, what do we know about them? What don't we know about them? And there's that really beautiful riff and I can't, I just, it'll, her name will come to me, but where you start to ask the questions, did she write with, the, you know, with a cup of tea yes. or did she like coffee? Did she yeah. write in the morning? Mm -hmm. Did she do, did she listen to music? then you know mm -hmm. here or did she go out or this and mm -hmm. all of these things that we have to kind of put together mm -hmm. because part of world building yes. part of seeing yourself in a place mm -hmm. really does come from example yes Even yes just a little bit some yeah. concrete something we want to yeah. know mm -hmm. what was it like what does it take yes it take right. to build that kind of a life yes yeah and what are the intimate 
the intimate details mm-hmm. of our lives, right? right? This is this is what is so often left out of profiles and narratives, you know, black right. peoples, which okay. is its own kind of violence we know. Right. Because, you know, if we aren't seen intimately and treated with care, then it becomes possible to put a knee on someone's neck. That's right. So, um, you know, I've had a lot of great examples of um, trying to write like that and ask those questions and mm-hmm. people who are an inspiration to me. Of mm-hmm. course, I would want to acknowledge the MacArthur Genius Fellow, my longtime colleague, Sadia Hartman, who's yes. Wayward Lives, yes. um, Beautiful Experiments, um, and also Farrah Jasmine Griffin, who's written yes. so beautifully with her pathbreaking book about Billie Holiday, yes. 20 years old this year, If You Can't Be Free, Be a Mystery. But you know they do a lot of speculative work, which was the last excerpt that I was reading from in the book is pivoting towards the speculative to be mm. able to think about how to handle the archival traces of people left behind with with care. And um, so, you know, I think this book has been a curious endeavor to some people who are expect a particular way of just writing about popular music in general, Mm -hmm. um, let alone Black people in popular music, which is to say Mm -hmm. that there is, I hope um, people recognize a real ethical arm to the book itself that I felt that I wanted to both challenge myself, challenge my readers and challenge my fellow critics, some of whom I have huge disagreements with. Mm -hmm. And I want to carefully and respectfully disagree with them to ask questions about the ethics of what we're doing when we're writing about these people who produced great art and left very little of themselves behind for reasons that more often than not have to do with systemic violence, right? Exactly. Exactly. I wanted to be able to, um, to, to think about a different way of writing about Black women in popular music culture that paid attention to that long history that stretches back to 1619. That's right. I guess I'll end here because this will, um, and as I said, you should see the pages of questions I have. <laughs> I want to <laughs> see them. <laughs> but, um, but I think we'll end here because this, this goes directly into what you just finished. Um, you make such a vivid case about our hunger and our need to know more about how these black women did what they did. The women who were looking, you know, at the expanse and the women who are creating and the quotidian ways of making a life. It really does start with our imagination um, and the depth, the depth in the stretch of it. And this will stay with me thinking about as I think myself about arts criticism and, you know, the privilege I've had to be able to kind of construct something, even though there wasn't a space for me, you know, I just tried to figure out ways of kind of doing some of this on the, on the sly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've got Zora Neale Hurston and Toni Morrison over the shoulder of your shoulder in this book, you know, women who wrote about, you know, landscapes and then interior mm-hmm. scapes yes. um mm-hmm. and I think about that and that's world making too mm-hmm. in what way could would you say that working on this project was expanding for you mind mm-hmm. expanding body expanding you mm-hmm. know for you how do you live in the world now after mm-hmm. having finished this well thank you for that question my gosh mm-hmm. um I guess I'll answer it I'll answer it two ways. One is that um, 
coming through this book meant trying to put together all of myself and to mm. lay claim to mm. all of them and honor mm. them and feel like they could all be in a space together. I mean, yeah. that's really, that's a line from the great black feminist statement, uh, the Cumbie River collective statement from 1976. There's mm. a way in which, um, yeah, 76, um, 77, 76, 77. They were in conversation in 76, but <laughs> there is a line that Barbara Smith and company have about, you know, being able to be all of yourselves at once. Yes. And yes. this book was about that for me because, yeah. you know, I'm somebody who did decide to take that path to get a PhD in English from UCLA and to teach in English departments at Princeton and and then make the move to Yale, a really pointed move to be able to teach in an interdisciplinary space mm -hmm. that allowed me to pick up all these different parts of myself mm -hmm. in music in women's gender and sexuality studies and American studies, and of course in AFAM. But beyond that, I wanted to continue the charge that I've been on for a long time of trying to meld this so-called academic voice that mm -hmm. uh, you know is, is infamous in, in certain circles <laughs> And to, to kind of to destabilize it by melding it with my, you know, quote unquote, public facing rock critic self, the 12 year old who was sitting, you know, hanging on Do David Brick's every word and Rolling Stone, you know, and, and Ann Powers every word and right and, and to, to try to, to think those things together. You did and, it. Yeah, I well, that you means a it. lot coming from you. That means a lot, you know, and, um, and I guess the other thing I'll say is that I I also really did try to be bare bones about inviting um, people who I disagree with and they are named in this book mm -hmm. um, to be in a space with me where we could just care for the conversation and the debates and be mm -hmm. mindful of our whole beings in those debates right. and I wanted to be able to model that for my students since mm -hmm. mm -hmm. a generation mm -hmm. who um you know is in the fire right now and we've got right. to find we've got to find ways to be brave enough and I mean that for you know some of the hegemonic folk but to be okay. in the room with us and okay. to to just be vulnerable with each okay. other so thank you so much for this oh, beautiful you. gift really thank you thank you, thank you. um it matters it's going to matter for so many people like us who grew up kind of wandering around, like wanting to be seen, um, heard. And, you know, and as you said, and that's so beautifully put about being able to assemble all those selves yeah. and, um, and they all work so seamlessly together in this book. So thank you. Oh, Linnell George. Thank you. <laughs> Means the world to me. Thank you. Thank you Thanks. both. This has been just, uh, I mean, just to hear you two speak to each other is so amazing. And you two are just, oh, you're, you're, you're both great. You're both amazing. <laughs> and I like, I wish we could have this podcast run forever. I wish, tell me <laughs> listeners, you could, you could just see the screen. There's just smiles everywhere. <laughs> smiles is... and love. And I love it all. I love it all. It's great. This is the greatest. I'm well, so before... Appreciative. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to uh, ask you both, do you have anything you'd like to say to the independent bookstore community as a whole? I wish you guys yeah. could see what else is so excited. <laughs> <laughs> uh, independent bookstores have, I, I was a bookstore clerk. 
mm-hmm. when I was in college. And um, and I think I never left bookstores, especially independent bookstores. Mm-hmm. There is nothing like forming a relationship mm-hmm. with your local bookstore and ha- yes. and yes. and being, you know, having a book hand sold to you and having yes. people alert you, wait, Linnell, yes. your book has come in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is what has kept me afloat during this mm-hmm. time is that mm-hmm. that community, um, they were in contact with me when my book came out <laughs> during mm-hmm. a pandemic. Yes. They were the ones that offered support. So thank you, Skylight, mm-hmm. you know, because you were one of the places I was and mm-hmm. um, I'm just so grateful. Yes. I mean, uh, Everything that Linnell said, and I will also say because we are sisters from another mother, also a bookstore clerk, um, right after right after college at Kepler's bookstore back in Menlo Park. But really, you know, my years in Berkeley, um, what would I have been without Cody's bookstore and Black Oak Books and Pegasus is still around. Um, there are places where, like the record store, I was able to rehearse and experiment and stay curious and you know I've asked my students where they how they imagine whether they can imagine sites where you could meet up to listen to music and to discover books and it's it's something that's so heartbreaking to think about potentially losing and that's why uh places like Skylight are are just so absolutely invaluable so very very grateful to the entire community and staff of Skylight. Oh my God! Thank you both. You both are just oh, so great, so 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 great, and it's just been beautiful to have to see this, see you both on the screen here like <laughs> this. Uh, this is, I feel, I feel like I got the um, backstage, you know, pass. You did, I got you did the, man. You did. Talked about the holes. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, I got the, he had the right laminate. No, my I'm I'm the groupie. I'm the groupie who snuck in through the back. <laughs> in. Oh, you, okay. I snuck in through the yeah. back. I want to. I want yeah. that. You know, because it has that like more edginess to it. It is better. Wiley, exactly. Wiley, Wiley is the Listen, word of the day. So. Yeah, that's what this pod. That's why I produce this podcast for is yeah. just to sneak um, in into the back of all these. <laughs> beautiful conversations like this one today so and to all my listeners you can um buy uh, liner notes for the revolution the intellectual life of black feminist sound today at the bookstore so go on in and buy your copy it should be in our podcast display section right at the front of right in the front of the store and linnell your book we also have for sale too um so Ooh. please buy that mm-hmm. you're uh hugo award finalist <laughs> book i we have to put that out there um for all the um octavia butler fans why, why aren't you reading this book sh- this book should be on your bookshelf <laughs> teaching for, at yale this fall so yay, yay. oh my god thank you, oh, thank you. There's, there's thank a, you what, what, that's amazing oh so thank you to all my listeners for coming back again and uh you have a great beautiful day to everyone listening have a good one thank you for listening to the skylight books podcast series please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on twitter and instagram also don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations you can find us on podbean itunes and spotify stay safe and healthy and we hope to see you back in our store soon